Hi, I'm Josh McDonald. And I'm Miranda Materi, and we are Hand Therapy Academy. We're going to talk a little bit about the Gail Groth Pyramid. And if you aren't familiar with it, it's this fantastic concept that is in an article that she wrote. Um, gosh, I forget the year, but it's been a long time. Um, it's been out there. And it's this pyramid of progression for patients with a flexor tendon injury. Yeah. So I remember being a newer grad and finding this article and it wasn't based on the weeks that they were out, right? It was based on how the patient was doing. So this, when I found this paper, I was like, wow, this is like gold, right? Because I know they're getting stuck. So I'm going to be starting to advance them sooner. Um, so I think her work was really uh, excellent and still, you know, great today because you can really start to see what's happening and do you need to intervene sooner or should we be leaving them alone? Are they moving well and we don't really need to do anything? And knowing that progression is tough because you get this sense of like, if you aren't constantly looking at the calendar and knowing how many weeks out they are, uh, every time they come in, it's hard to know like they're at week four, week six, but this gives you the idea a very concrete, because there's an equation we'll talk about that says they're progressing enough, I should leave them, they're getting a little stuck, I should advance them, and here's where to advance them to based on how they're doing, not just some arbitrary week mark at three weeks and four days versus four weeks and two days, and yeah. Right. So I think a key with it, her is knowing the formula, right? So it's taking range of motion measurements and then putting them into the formula. So it does require a little bit of work, but we should be taking weekly measurements anyways, right? To know if they're getting better or not. Yeah, definitely. And in this case, it's a pretty straightforward, easy measurement. It's it, We're only measuring DIP of the finger for her measurement. There's some other ones out there, but for hers, we're measuring just the DIP of the infected, di infected digit or others if they're involved but I'm going to measure the previous week's active range of motion, the current week's active range of motion. I'm going to take the difference and divide that over the, uh, the current range of motion. So it's the pre So you want to do current DIP range of motion minus the previous DIP divided by the previous DIP. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And so that gives us the percentage of change. And so if they have a 10% change or better, they're moving great. Leave them where they are. If they have less than 10%, then we want to advance them and do something slightly more so that we can keep them progressing and not let them get stuck in scar. Yeah. So what Gail Groth did, then did say, so under 10%, okay, we're going to move you up on the pyramid depending upon where they're at. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the pyramid. So the first thing is passive protected or active protected extension. So that's just where they're extending into the dorsal blocking splint or the dorsal blocking orthosis. And then you're moving on to place and holds. And then the next step from that is the active composite fist followed by hook and straight fist exercise, the more of those tendon glided, and then isolated joint blocking. And then it moves on to discontinuing the splint to resisted composite flexion, resisted hook, and then resisted joint blocking. So it goes up based on the forces that are applied to the tendon. And so that's not the only thing, like those are, those are hugely instrumental things to, to progress through and they add increased force as you go. We don't want to apply too much force too early, but if they're stuck in scar, then we got to pull through that. Uh, but it takes time to get through those on subsequent visits, but that's not the only thing we'll be doing. We talked in one of our previous podcasts about us doing short arc around a dowel, us doing self-passive range of motion. So that's not maybe all we do, but those are these litmus items that says, if I've been doing the active extension to the block, and they're still showing less than 10% change, I might want to add the next tier up the ladder is, or up the pyramid is, um, is place and holds. So it gives us some structure. 
Again, it's not the only thing we'll be doing in a session or with that patient's home programming, but it progresses us to the next one. Yeah, it lets you know, okay, I know they're not progressing. So now this visit, I'm going to move into the hook fist, right? Versus before I would be waiting until that five, six week mark, depending on what protocol you're following to do the hook fist. But this one says, hey, this patient's getting stuck or their FDP is getting stuck because we're only measuring the DIP. So we're going to do something that puts a little more tension on that to hopefully free it from the scar. And, and so let's talk about some of the things on that list. There's, uh, I think I, if I counted right, there's a total of maybe eight on that yeah, pyramid. So there's eight on that pyramid. By the t- if they come in once a week for a couple of weeks, you're not going to get through all eight of those by the time you're through six weeks before you're discharging the splint and now you're able to work on strength stuff. So you may not even get to those top ones before like, okay, we're able to do all things. But some of the early ones have kind of come into question a little bit. Um, there's still a lot of doctors that use place and holds and have good outcomes with it. There's still therapists using place and holds, but Dr. Lalonde and Dr. Higgins did an open source article where they showed this concept of a buckle and jerk that when I put the finger on flexion with a place, it's actually buckled and folded and I don't get full proximal excursion. It kind of doubles over on itself and buckles a little bit. And then when I tell them to hold, it's not a slow and gentle, like a short arc flexion. It's more like just because of our nature, we go, okay, bam, hold. And that causes a jerk that could be more Newtons of force on that repair than we want to apply at the early stages. So we tend away from a place and hold, but you can still have good outcomes with it if you want to pursue that. People have for a long time had positive outcomes. There's some risk, but it's maybe a relatively small risk until we see this article from Lalonde and Higgins that maybe says, well, we can see that there's some potential there. So you can decide whether or not to include that one. Yeah, I think too. So I think they there's an open source article that um, Lalonde and Higgins did that you can look at the video of actually showing the buckle jerk. And I think they got that from Dr. Amadio at Mayo Clinic um, that they reused in the article. And there's a good diagram on there that shows it as well. So I always tell you know therapists, well, you know, it's up to you and your doctor what you decide to do. But I know uh, personally, me in the clinic, I I don't ever do place and holds anymore. Yeah. And, and I honestly find that patients find it a little um, aggressive, especially in those early stages that low in the pyramid. So I tend away from that in our clinic too. I teach my students and therapists. I don't want to do place and holds. I feel like there's a lot of other ways to get early short arc motion happening in there. Um, joint blocking comes a little bit later on, but there's lots of other ways to do like training to get that FTP pull through. Um, but that is one of the major things that we'll see that this Groth pyramid can help with is either PIP flexion contracture or lack of pull through of that FDP that leads that leads to that DIP kind of extension contracture where you're just not getting pulled through that DIP. Yeah, so it can be very helpful with that. And I also think if you're studying for the CHT exam, you know, this is a topic you should know. You should kind of understand Gail Groth's work um, that she did because I think it kind of changed how we think about um, these flexor tendon patients more of an algorithm as opposed to uh, an exact protocol. If it's an article you want to go looking for, uh, Gail Groth is spelled G-R-O-T-H. And she has in that article, both the formula for determining the 10%. uh, If you didn't catch it because I said it wrong in the first place, (laughs) either that formula there, she also has the pyramid. You can do a Google search for the Gail Groth pyramid um, and find that. There are also some other measures for establishing progression. Um, The Strickland guide also, um, uh, Strickland did an article with another formula for establishing that. So a couple of different options to do in your clinic and maybe even just having a spreadsheet in each patient's file 
where you track that week by week to make sure they're seeing either a 10% change and you leave them or less than a 10% and you advance them on in some way. Yeah, I think key though is right, measuring them and trying to pick up on signs that they're getting stuck or um, if they really are just improving. And and the only way you can do that is by doing range of motion measurements. And sometimes 10, 10 degree, or excuse me, 10% doesn't feel like all that much and we want to advance them, but we need to find some like, okay, well, they're doing okay. 10% is fine. It doesn't have to be a huge amount in order for me to leave them, but I need to measure in order to know that it's that 10%. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that helps. Go find that article if you can. Uh, it it's, uh, really kind of changes your practice when you're seeing things as an algorithm and a, and a progression rather than just straight, um, straight timelines. Um, if you have any questions, reach out to us on our email, info at handtherapyacademy.com, or you can message us on Instagram at handtherapyacademy.